Well, tonight um, I'll be preaching from Daniel chapter 1. Uh, at times during this uh, calendar year, this school year, um, I'll be preaching from 1 Peter alongside Robert. Uh, and other times will be um, what we call Gap Sundays. And um, but we have three, this is the first of three Gap Sundays. Uh, Robert is on um, paternity leave. Abby had a baby. And uh, they had their fourth son. Uh, old Henry was born uh, this past week. Everything went well, and they're home um, with an increased volume in their home. Um, four boys. I mean, I can't. I've got one and two girls, and I'm like, could it be any louder in here? Um, so in these what we call Gap Sundays, a lot of them, especially the ones I preach, will be thematic from what we, where we've been in First Peter. We'll pick up another place in the scriptures and carry on a theme. And uh, tonight it's the one of exile. And in preparation, I thought of the, it, it really kind of aligned itself with this book I've been reading, and maybe you're reading it too. It's called Hillbilly Elegy. Um, it's a book. It's actually, I looked, it's the um, fourth uh, highest-selling book in the New York Times nonfiction section, and it's called Hillbilly Elegy. Um, and it's a, it's a memoir, and it's written by uh, this man. His name's J.D. Vance. He's in his early 30s, and uh, he grew up in Middletown, Ohio. And I know about Middletown because I'm from Northern Kentucky, but Middletown is in the middle between Dayton and Cincinnati. It's directly in between. If you look on a map, you see, wow, that's where they got their name, Middletown. And, um, but even though he grew up in this Midwestern suburb, he would not call himself a Midwesterner. But he wouldn't call himself a Southerner either. He would classify himself as a mountain person. Um, if you spent any time in Kentucky, you know uh, what he means by mountain person. He means that he's from Eastern Kentucky. Uh, see, J.D. Vance's grandparents are from Breathitt County. Breathitt County um, is in Eastern Kentucky. And they moved, uh, his grandparents moved from uh, Breathitt County to Middletown uh, for a better life, which really meant more job opportunities. His grandfather worked in a steel, a steel mill his whole life. And, um, and he said that his grandparents and then his mother, his aunt, and his uncle, uh, the two generations before him who were in Middletown, that they were forever dubbed as outsiders in Middletown. They were dubbed that even though so many people in the 50s and 60s moved from Appalachia to Midwestern suburbs for jobs at steel factories. But they were outsiders because they talked different. They acted different. And J.D. Vance experienced this even as a third-generation Middletowner. Um, he didn't feel at home in Middletown, but he felt at home in Breathitt County. So he would go and he'd spend his summers and his holidays in Breathitt County, and it was there that he was with his great-grandparents, his second, his third, his fourth cousins, his, his great-aunts and uncles. It was here that he felt more like an insider than he did in Middletown. And so in some ways, even though he was born and raised in Ohio, he was in exile because he talked different and thought different and acted different. But he was also in exile when he was in Kentucky because he lived in Middletown. So he had um, this identity crisis. And this is very much where, this, where the memoir comes from. And as I thought about his story, I kind of thought about my, my own. Um, I grew up in northern Kentucky. Is it in Cincinnati or is it in Kentucky? Um, and I realized that growing up, the Cincinnatians, they, they were very slow uh, to embrace the hillbillies on the other side of the river, just like J.D. Vance experienced. So I really thought, okay, when I uh, go to UK, um, I'll, I'll get connected to my Kentucky roots. But I quickly realized that a lot of Midwesterner had rubbed off on me because of Cincinnati. So 
Where is home for those of us who are from what we call the NKY? Is it Cincinnati or is it Kentucky? I can say now that I feel a lot more at home in Kentucky than I do Cincinnati. So Lexington really does feel like home. But I had to answer and still am answering some tough questions about what does it mean to be at home? Questions like, what's wrong with me? Questions like, when I'm faced with an incongruence with who I am and the world around me, how do I know whether to adjust or stay true to my roots? So this whole introduction about J.D. Vance and about the NKY, it's about exile. It's about exile in a cultural sense. And many of you have done this hard work when you moved to Lexington, or you did this hard work when you moved from Lexington to another place, and now you're back. And what we've been learning in First Peter, that though the theme of exiles, that the theme of exiles is very much our status in this world as Christians. We're forever exiles. We have a home. We're just not there. And we're not the first round of God's people to have this exilic status. In the 7th century B.C., um, Jerusalem, uh, Israel had been under siege. They had been attacked for decades. And finally, the, the Babylonians, they won. And the Babylonians, instead of annihilating the Jews, they, 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 they imprisoned them, and they made them take a long walk from Jerusalem to present-day Iraq. And when they got there, they wanted to make them a, a part of their nation. So here they are. They're God's people. But they're in exile in Babylon, and it's clearly not home to them. And the prophets address this theme in biblical history. One of the prophets is Daniel, where our passage is from tonight. And the point of the whole book is to show how God remains faithful even when his people are in exile. So let's read our passage. It's a long one. Um, so hang in there with me. Just, uh, Daniel 1, uh, verses 1 to 21. This is the whole chapter. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people to Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So you see what's happening there. Is that they're, they're, they're getting the, the youngest talent from Jerusalem, and they're indoctrinating them in the ways of the Babylonians. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the, king, of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. 
For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So what Daniel's saying is, I've got to eat something different. He tells the chief of the eunuchs that. Chief of the eunuchs is like, I'm going to be in big trouble if you don't look and, and if, if your body's not in as good a shape as everybody else because you didn't eat what they ate. Verse 11, Then Daniel said to the steward from the chief of the eunuchs, had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. And at the end of time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and all enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The word of the Lord. So there's a lot in here. Uh, I, I, I can't cover it all, but I'm going to cover um, three things. Um, three things you need to know as an exile to prosper. Are you going to conform or are you not going to conform? It's the title of my sermon. So the first one, the first viewpoint, the first thing you've got to know if you're going to be in exile is you have to know how to reframe your disaster. You have to know how to reframe your disaster. Um, this is, it's a hard pill to swallow here in the first two verses. Um, to receive this truth, it's like trying to swallow an apple whole. Do you see it? Do you see it in verse 2? And the, Lord got, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So God is the one who put them in exile. If they have a problem with their current painful predicament, they're going to have to take it up with God. He's the one to blame. It would be easy to blame the other parties for their captivity. It would be easy to blame the Babylonians and make them the scapegoat. And, the, and God's people would say, they're cruel, they're powerful, they have corrupt rulers, and they've taken away all our, all our freedoms. It's unjust. It might be even easier for them to assign blame to themselves for their captivity. And if you look at the larger biblical account, you'll see that the reason for their exile is in part their unfaithfulness to the Lord. God warned them again and again to repent. And to turn to him, but they wouldn't do it. And so finally, God's patience wore out, and he sent Babylon to take them captive. So when you're in exile, who do you blame? Do you blame yourself? Do you blame the majority power? Or do you blame God? But what we see from verse 2, what we need to have reframed is even when we're in exile, God is in control. See, he was as much in control when Israel was prospering 
as he was when they were in exile. He was as much in control of King Jesus when he hung on the cross and when he lay dead in a tomb as he was when he rose Jesus from the grave. And the same goes for you. When you're riding on the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, God's in control. He's sovereign. He's got a plan for you. You might not know what your next turn is, but you can be assured that's going to bring him glory and it's going to be for your good. Looking at this verse uh, and thinking about it, I I thought of one of my favorite old hymns. Um, I asked Justin if you ever heard a cool rendition of it, and he said no. Um, But it's still beautiful um, lyrically. The the hymn goes, um, God moves in mysterious ways. Here's part of it. It says, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break, and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Does your life currently have a bitter taste? Are you in the midst of a frowning providence? Does it seem like dreadful clouds loom overhead? Well, you can know that the flower will be sweet, and that behind your frowning providence is a smiling face of Jesus, and one day, big clouds will break with mercy and blessing upon your head. You're going to need this God-centered view of suffering when you're in exile in order to hang on to your hope. See, God's faithful to us even in our exile and even when it looks like the bad guys are going to win. So if you're an exile, you've got to learn how to reframe it. But if you're an exile, you've also got to know uh, the second point. This is my second point. You also have to know how to remain in tension. You have to know how to remain in tension. Uh, this is really comes from verses 4 to 7. And this is a, a really key uh, dimension because now you've, kind of, you've reframed things theologically in the midst of your exile. But now you've got to know how to deal with, with, with the majority culture. The majority culture that you're not in control of. So Daniel's got to, he's got to reframe his suffering and he's got to figure out how do I deal with these Babylonians. He's got a few options at hand. He could accommodate, he could fight, or he could withdraw. He could accommodate, he could fight, or he would withdraw. The same is true for us. As Christians, how are we going to deal with the majority culture? Well, first one, we can accommodate. And this is, this is, what, it means. This is what I would call the cool Christian. Um, the cool Christians, they love being a part of a seeker-sensitive Christian community. They love skinny pants. They love micro-brews. They love fancy coffee. They love indie music, and they, and, they're, and, they, and they shout loud for social justice. See, their desire is to be relevant. Their desire is, is, is to listen to the culture at large and affirm what's commendable about that culture. This is admirable. But the accommodators are slow to speak about what is deplorable in their culture's values. Why? Because they don't want to lose relevancy. So what happens is the cool Christians end up being absorbed and assimilated in the majority, and they lose their distinctiveness as exiles. And this absorption, it's mostly, it's mostly, I think, in the areas of their sexuality and their money. See, our culture that sees our bodies as tools to either meet our needs, uh, of our appetites for acceptance, we either give our bodies our, our sexuality away because we want to feel accepted, or we give our bodies away in, in a desire for pleasure. 
And what that happens is the accommodators, the, the cool Christians, they easily fall into this trap. They lower their standards for a spouse, and they get comfortable with sexual immorality. They get absorbed. But you also might get, you might get absorbed in your view of money. This is where accommodators are easy to flex. See, our culture says we live in excess and greed. And it causes us to either spend, spend, spend to find happiness or hoard, hoard, hoard to find security. What the gospel does, it calls us to radical generosity. That's one thing that Daniel could do. He could just say yes to everything. Every, every request made of him by, by the Babylonians, he could say yes. Or Daniel and us, we could fight. These are the angry Christians. Cool Christians hate angry Christians. Um, angry Christians, they're, they're, they're like freedom fighters. They, they usually take their cues from the political arena. They love to mudsling. They love to name call. They love to fear monger. That's how, those are their preferred methods of dealing with the culture at large. It's an us versus them mentality. And in some ways, angry Christians, they, they've got to be commended because they have a desire to change the world. There's an unrest within them about the way things are, and there's a hope in them for a future that can be. And they're usually willing to risk their lives and their reputations for it. But their methods are out of line with the gospel. See, angry Christians are often correct in their convictions, but all that's nullified by their angry tactics to bring about that change. So Daniel could do that. We could do that. We could withdraw. I call these the nice Christians. They live in a holy huddle. It's, uh, it's us and four and no more. Now we, go, now we bar the door. These are the people that love to have really close friends and talk about Jesus, and that's about it. The mentality is, is that, th- th- that there's no need to engage the larger culture as long as they preserve their distinctives as Christians. But to their credit, holiness is a value. To their credit, community is a value. But they miss out on the missional thrust of Jesus. So you could accommodate, you could fight, you could withdraw, but Daniel doesn't do any of these. He hasn't adopted any of these strategies. He, he, he seems to accommodate in a couple places because he lets them name him. You know, it would be pretty humiliating to have someone give you a new name. He's a, he's a teenager and he loses his, his Jewish heritage, his Jewish name, and he's given a Babylonian name. He goes from Daniel to Belshazzar. Just the sound of the names would be worth not having, let alone what it means. <laughs> So he, he, he gets a new name. He also, um, he, also has, he also lets them educate him. But then he seems to fight in another place, doesn't he? He seems to fight about what he's going to eat. So what is he doing? How did, what grid is Daniel working with to know what to say yes to and what to say no to when he deals with the Babylonians? Well, his strategy is a fourth option. His strategy is the incarnation. The incarnation means in means in. Surprise. Carn means flesh. In the flesh. And it's used as a classical theology term uh, for Jesus. That it refers to Jesus being God in the flesh. I don't know how this happened, but in some mysterious way, God, that I can't use language for, God takes on a body. He becomes a man while not losing one drop of what makes him God. So you want to talk about being in exile. Look at Jesus. Jesus left the comfy confines of heaven to endure the pain and embrace the limitations of being a man. This was how Daniel and his three other friends carried themselves. They didn't enjoy the comfy confines of Jerusalem anymore, 
but they had to somehow embrace the limitations of being in exile. So what does this look, what does it look like for us to be incarnational in the way we live our lives and how, in the way that we engage the majority culture? Well, one uh, text that I preached on about a year ago and we read as an Old Testament reading if, um, in the last few weeks is from Jeremiah 29. Um, Jeremiah was, uh, he wrote during the same, when Daniel was in a, a, a place of, um, was he, was he, when he was in a place of uh, authority or, or influence, when Daniel was, so was Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. And he's trying to give hope for the future to the, for those people and instructions on how to live in the here and now. He's trying to tell them, here's, here's how you live as exiles. And Jeremiah 29, 4-7 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. There it is again. God's saying, I'm the one who put you there. From Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and don't increase or don't decrease. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, have a house, have a job, and have a family. That's how you're supposed to be exiles. You're like, whoa, that's not all that spiritual. What's so crazy about that? Well, verse 7 is what's crazy. In verse 7 it says this, but... Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, in Babylon's welfare, you will find your welfare. So this whole business of being exiled, it's pretty normal. You have a job, you have a house, you have a family. But these people knew as long as they were in Babylon, they weren't at home. They were resident aliens. They were inner strangers who were outwardly involved as they sought the welfare of the city. They cooperated without being compromised. And God's calling us to be this kind of people. But the problem is we've taken up another strategy. We've either become the cool Christians and we've just absorbed in the larger culture. We've gotten angry as we stand for truth, so that's what we say, or we withdraw. We choose to have our Christian friends go to church, but we don't care about the city, the welfare of the city. And I think for us, the most likely option is that we've been absorbed. We've chosen that instead of the incarnation. So you've got to know how to reframe your disaster. You've got to know how to remain in tension, dealing with the, with the, with the majority culture, and then you've got to resolve and your commitments to not compromise. See, in verses 8 to 21, um, it, it's, it's really all um, focuses on this one word that you see in verse 8. It says, Daniel resolved. See, his, res his resolve was around what he had to say no to. And it's hard at first to see what he said no to. He, he said no uh, to eating the kind of meal I would want to eat every meal, uh, delectable food and wine. And instead, he went with the water vegetable route. Why did he do that? Well, I mean, it could have been something to do with the dietary laws. It could have been that maybe, according to dietary laws of, of God's people, they weren't supposed to have pork. So maybe the only meat they got was pork. It might have been that, according to the dietary laws, all the, all the blood had to be drained properly out of the meat. Well, maybe all the meat wasn't properly drained of its blood. Maybe that's one option. Perhaps um, the defilement was in the loyalty to accept everything. Okay, you can change my name. Okay. 
I'll, I'll, I'll take your education, and okay, I'll eat whatever you give me. Maybe that, that, would, that would communicate, I've got total loyalty to the king of Babylon. So maybe he just had to say no to something, and so the, the, the thing to say no to was the food. Well, I don't really think it was either of those options. I don't think it's necessarily the dietary laws. I don't think it necessarily was, I can't accept, uh, um, I can't do everything you tell me or else I've got loyalty to you. I think it was the third option. I think, um, I think what happened here is that he wanted to be put in a position where the only way that he was going to succeed is if God did something. So for them to appear more fresh and more strong with a vegetable water diet than all the other people who had a gourmet diet, it was going to take something extraordinary. Something from God was going to have to happen. So Daniel and his friends, they put God to the test, and God showed himself faithful. All because they made a resolution. What do you need to make a resolution about? What commitments are you being led to make that are going to distinguish you from the world around you. It might be your money. Maybe you need to make a resolution that you're going to stay out of consumer debt no matter what, and you're going to live below your means. Maybe you're going to resolve to give a certain percentage of your money away. Maybe you need to do something else. Maybe you need to say, I'm going to make a commitment to be at church unless I'm going to die. I mean, maybe not that bad, but um, I'm not 52 weeks out of the year. But it, it, it's not a question, am I going to come to church or not? I need the means of grace. Maybe that's what you need to make a resolution about. Maybe you need to make, make a resolution around that you're only going to marry a Christian. Maybe you need to make, uh, make a resolution that you're going to be abstinent before marriage. Maybe you need to make a resolution to confess to a Christian or brother that you've slipped back into an addiction that they don't know anything about. Maybe that's what you need to make a resolution about. Maybe it's, you don't need to eat vegetables and water. Maybe you need to do something that's a lot harder than that. But in order for that to happen, it's going to take a lot more than restraint. See, restraint's just a, simply an increase in willpower. But resolution is going to take conviction. And Daniel had some serious convictions that were just strengthened by his external routines. He had convictions that God was good. That he could be trusted. He had another conviction that God was powerful. He's way more powerful than Babylon. And this is what makes him such a notable exile. Think about it. He's a notable exile, and he's a youth, so he's a teenager. And he doesn't hold some special office. He's not a prophet. He's not a king. He's not a priest. But he makes a resolution. Can I make application here? You know who the most important people are in every church? You might say, oh, it's the pastor. Wrong. It's never the pastor. It's the Daniels. The flourishing of of our church or other churches has so much less to do with the current or the past pastors and much more to do about the men and women who make resolutions to love God and care about their community. And that's what it's going to take. If our church is going to be around in 30 years, 50 years, or 100 years, it's going to take men and women who are going to say, I'm going to trust God in adversity, I'm going to live incarnationally, and I'm going to be a person of resolve. It'd be easy to take that and say, okay, I'm going to be that kind of person, Marshall. That's me. I'm ready. Give me something to sign. Well, you can't do that. You can give it your best. You can try to achieve that, but you're going to fail. You're going to fail without Jesus. 
Think about Jesus. Jesus endured something way worse than Babylon. He was the exile of exiles. There's not a bigger cross-cultural experience than to go from being praised in heaven to being executed on earth. Jesus endured ridicule and physical death, and so much more he drank the, wrath of, he drank the cup of the wrath of God for the sins of his people. And guess what? All of that was God's idea. Just as the exile to Babylon was God's idea, so was Jesus' substitutionary death. He reframed his disaster. Jesus remained in tension. He sifted, through, he sifted through the larger culture. Jesus embraced both Jew and Gentile, poor and rich, man and woman, young and old. Yet he was, criti- he, so even though he embraced all those people, then he would turn around and he would critique the religious. He would critique the rich. Then he would identify with the marginalized, but even the marginalized, he said, you've got to follow me. He remained in tension. Jesus made some resolutions. He made some commitments. He resolved to only say what his father commanded. He resolved to only do what his father was doing. Why did he do this? Why did he reframe his disaster? Why did he remain in tension? Why did he resolve in his commitments? He didn't do it as a model for you to follow and as a model for me to follow. He didn't do it for that reason. He did it as our substitute. And to the extent that you see Jesus as this, not just as a model to be emulated, but as a substitute, will be the extent that you'll be able to receive apparent disaster from the Lord, that you'll be able to live incarnationally as an exile, and that you'll be able to resolve towards obedience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we see you as the true and greater Daniel. Daniel's commendable. He didn't make the kind of leap you did. He didn't suffer the way you did. Lord, it's not Daniel who offers himself to us, it's you. Lord, you offer yourself to us as our friend, as our king, as the one who's closer than our very skin. Oh, Lord Jesus, may we submit to you, the lover of our souls. In Christ's name, amen.